Now I'm on. It's good to be with you this morning, my family. Um, In the passage of Scripture that we're going to be considering this morning, we're going to be looking at what Paul wrote to the Philippian church about the importance of coming to know Jesus Christ in an intimate way. What is involved in that and the why behind it. Paul addresses humility in knowing Christ and the absolute dependence upon God that is necessary to know Christ. And Paul does this without laying down one requirement for the believer. We will see that this is something, coming to know Christ, is something that God does in us. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we're grateful that we can gather here as your family and worship you, adore you, exalt you, for you are our God. Jesus, you are our King. And we humble ourselves before you right now, Lord, asking that you would teach us, get me out of the way, Lord, that your glory would shine. Help us to walk out of here with a little bit better understanding of what it is to know Jesus intimately. For we ask it in his name. Amen. My family went camping about a month ago, and for the first time, we dragged our travel trailer up the mountain. And I'm here to tell you, I was a little bit scared having something that big dragging behind me. But eventually, I settled down, and we got up there with no incident, no problem. But when it was time to leave the campsite and come back down the mountain, I found that the anti-sway bar had broken. And I hadn't noticed that when we got there. So we hooked up without it, and I made it fine coming down Ice House Road down to Highway 50 just fine because we weren't going very fast. But when we got on 50 and I tried to get up to 55 miles an hour, the back end of my trailer was doing this, swaying back and forth like crazy. I had cars honking at me and my wife saying, slow down. Well, I figured, I can do this. I gripped that steering wheel and I said, this isn't going to get the best of me. I don't need an anti-sway bar. I'll just slow down. Right. I white-knuckled it for 30 miles, pulled over, got on the Internet, found an RV dealer that had an anti-sway bar to sell me, and I went and bought it. White-knuckling, holding on so tight to the steering wheel that our knuckles turn white is how I initially learned to live the Christian life. It's how I learned what it is to get to know the Savior. I used to think I can do this because it was a whole bunch of things that I was taught to do. I rigorously engaged in having a quiet time, reading, memorizing, studying Scripture, evangelizing, worshiping, serving at church, giving, being at church every time the doors were opened. Not only that, but I was way too young in my walk with Christ when I was ordained as a deacon. And in the church culture of the denomination we were in, the deacon served as a sounding board for the pastor. We were given any number of assignments, and mine included attending the deacon's meetings, which were frequent at times, being assigned to a minimum of two committees, And I also was teaching adult Sunday school. 
but I was also given assignments for anything that came up. And it was clearly implied that saying no was not an option. The culture didn't allow for that. So that's how I thought. I have to be involved. I have to do all these things to be a good Christian. And to make it worse, time with my very young family was wanting. Spiritual intimacy with Jesus Christ was non-existent. My activity took the place of my real time with the Lord. Now, don't get me wrong. There is absolutely nothing wrong with any of those activities that I mentioned. The spiritual disciplines or activities at church. No, that's not what I'm saying. Engaging in spiritual disciplines is very beneficial for us as believers. And God has gifted every single believer, and that gifting is to be employed for his glory. But apart from the gospel, apart from the completed work of Jesus Christ, they are ritualistic exercises. Why? Because of the motivation behind them. Thinking we will gain favor with God by engaging in them. Understand, nothing we do can gain favor with God. Too often, those of us who engage in the meticulous ritualistic exercises of the disciplines will even feel the need, and this was me, feel the need to double up the next day if I missed a prayer time or a quiet time. Yeah. If we do this, what we are doing is legalistically white, knuckling the spiritual steering wheel all the way. And remember, our deeds are as filthy rags. The fact of the matter is, the gospel, what Jesus did on our behalf, must be taken taken into account by us daily. Each of us, daily. I'll address that in a minute. Our scripture this morning is found in Philippians 3, 8 to 11. Paul wrote to the church, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. In the first part of chapter 3, Paul warns the church about the Judaizers that that were among them. These were people who believed that that in order to be saved, an individual, a a male, had to be circumcised. That was part of salvation in their view. And Paul warned the church about that, calling them dogs, which was an incredible insult in his day. He then said, For we, that is, those of us in Christ, believers, are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself, Paul says, have reason for for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And he went on to list seven qualities that demonstrated the confidence 
in what he had done and who he was as an individual. He said he was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He said, "As as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, he said he was blameless. He was blameless without any fault. Paul's pedigree made him the big shot in his circles, spiritually speaking. But after coming to an understanding of the gospel of God's grace and his own inability to keep the law, Paul cast all those things aside. He counted them all as loss, not gain. In fact, he considered all things, everything, everything in his life to his disadvantage because of the indescribable ongoing value of knowing Jesus Christ. That was the important thing. Not the most important thing, the important thing. It was for Christ's sake and for the sake of his relationship with Christ, for the sake of his position in Christ, that Paul forfeited his qualifications and considered them being no better than scum, the worst thing you can imagine. Again, he did so, and this is critically important to understand, because he recognized the immeasurable value of knowing Jesus Christ. And this was not something Paul went back and forth with, no. When, when he said that he, everything he had accumulated he counted as loss, it was something that was a done deal. It was done in the past, and had, the effects went forward into the future. It was a fact. It was permanent. And it was all because of Christ and what he had accomplished on the cross. In verses 8 to 11 then, Paul goes into a more detailed explanation of what he was talking about earlier in the chapter. He viewed everything he listed earlier as being to his disadvantage because of the fact that knowing Christ was what governed his life. Paul saw the list list that he enumerated as obstacles to knowing Christ. Why? Why? Got him all puffy-chested. He was full of pride. I mean, those those qualifications, seven things, that made him above everybody in his world. Knowing Christ was what controlled his life and what characterized his life. Knowing Christ was what mattered and that was what was most supremely valuable to Paul. This knowing is a different word than know in verse 10. Here, Paul's talking about his acquired knowledge of Jesus Christ, that is, pursuing him passionately, learning more and more about him. That is what mattered to Paul. It mattered way more than the spiritual history he had put together before his experience on the Damascus Road. In addition to knowing Christ, we see here that Paul's focus was to cast those things aside so that he would be found in him. He wanted to gain Christ, not the things of the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, but he wanted to gain Christ. The believer who loses all things like Paul is is talking about because of Christ is the one who gains Christ. With the things of the world cast aside, that is having that attitude, the obstacles to knowing Christ are gone. Paul knew that it does not profit a man to gain the whole world only to lose his own soul. He knew that. And it's important to understand that which we gain 
is that in which we have the ultimate confidence. That which we gain is what we have the most confidence in. If what we consider gain in this life consists of our job, our salary, our family, our position in the community, our position in our church, if those are the things we consider to be gain, it is those things in which we place our ultimate confidence. Not so for Paul, no. Instead of his elevated position as a Pharisee, with everyone looking up to him, what he was interested in was knowing Christ, gaining Christ, and being found in him. It was in Christ that he placed his trust. It was in Christ that he experienced the ultimate confidence. None of that other stuff mattered. It was Christ he wanted to be found in on the last day, living in him with Christ as the important aspect of his life. Again, not the most important, the important aspect of his life. To be found in Christ is to be living in him spiritually when he returns because we are living spiritually in him in the present. The idea is something that may or should happen, that is, gaining Christ and being found in him, suggesting that the action is dependent upon some condition being met. What might that condition be? Paul describes it for us in the negative and in the positive. He says, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. This would be called a works righteousness. But instead, having a righteousness which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Righteousness has to do with being fully justified, exactly measuring up to to God's rigorous standard. The word conveys the idea of perfectly conforming to the law of God and expresses the idea of being in right relationship with God because of performance. Remember in the beginning I mentioned Paul's warning to the church about the Judaizers? Well, the Judaizers were doing this very thing. They were wanting to impose upon the new believers works, being circumcised. And Paul warned them and said they were dogs for doing so. not unlike the church in Galatia, or those today who will teach that one must engage in the spiritual disciplines or observe man-made rules in order to be right with God. Think about it. If righteousness comes by our keeping the law or engaging in spiritual disciplines or any other activity, Christ died needlessly. Needlessly. Paul's not denouncing the law now, nor is he denouncing the righteousness demanded by it but he's denouncing his own former self-righteous confidence in his own merits. No amount of law-keeping, self-improvement, discipline, or religious effort can make anyone right with God. And I'm here to testify, self-improvement doesn't work. For years, I tried to be the better husband to my wife. My wife deserved a better husband. And so we'd hear sermons on marriage and we'd read books and all that kind of thing. And boy, I'd just put my head down and I'd plow forward in my own strength. What did that accomplish? Nothing but frustration. Absolutely nothing but frustration. Because after a week, maybe even two weeks, boom, I'd fall flat on my face. Because I was depending upon myself. 
all these activities may give one a, a sense of righteousness, but there's no way they can measure up to the standard of a perfectly righteous God. As he makes his argument, Paul knows he will not gain Christ and he will not be found in him if he depends on his own self-achieved righteousness that results from his own feeble attempts at keeping the law. Paul knows that his obedience to the law, his ritualistic, honorable morality, is not sufficient to make him righteous in God's sight. Paul came to realize and understand that there's no way to perfectly keep the law of God, which is the standard required by God. No, Paul knows when he wrote this letter, he knew the only righteousness that counts is the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ and Christ's finished work on the cross. He knows that righteousness that is acceptable to God is actually from God. How's that possible? Paul explained it here and in Romans 3, where he argued that it's possible because it was the Father who sent the Son to bear the penalty for our sin, to bear the wrath of the Father, to take it all upon himself for the benefit of those who would be called to salvation. God provided the required righteousness for us. It is because of Christ's finished work on the cross. It is because of Christ's righteousness, he who committed no sin, that believers, you and I, through faith, are deemed righteous. And this righteousness is a gift from God to each believer. Paul continued in verse 9, making the point that true righteousness comes through faith in Christ. Faith involves completely renouncing any confidence in ourselves. Renouncing any confidence in ourselves. Completely leaving behind any confidence in our accomplishments or any confidence in our spiritual maturity. Faith is receiving the gift of salvation from God and it is the Holy Spirit who enables us to receive this gift. We can't even do that ourselves. Instead of being confident in our own spiritual efforts, faith entails emptying ourselves, relying completely on the perfect righteousness of Christ, relying on his death, burial, and triumphant resurrection. Just as Jesus emptied himself, Paul tells us in Philippians 2, we too must empty ourselves. That is humbling, and that is the point. Excuse me. So a few minutes ago, I talked about revisiting the gospel each day. In his book, The Discipline of Grace, Jerry Bridges argued that believers must, must preach the gospel to themselves every day. Why? Why would that be important? I mean, the gospel is what we need for salvation, sure. But that's not after we've been saved, right? No. The gospel is important to each of us every single day because, as Bridges put it, Quote, to live by the gospel means that we firmly grasp the fact that Christ's life and death are ours by virtue of our union with him. What he did, we did. Because of our frequent failures before God, we do feel under condemnation. We do not feel God is for us, but must surely be against us. We do think he's bringing charges against us. Get this, at such times we must preach the gospel to ourselves. We must review what God has declared to be true about our justification in Christ. He continued, to preach the gospel to yourself then means that you continually face up to your own sinfulness. Then flee to Jesus through faith in his shed blood and righteous life. 
It means that you appropriate, again, by faith, the fact that Jesus fully satisfied the law of God, that he is your propitiation, and that God's holy wrath is no longer directed toward you. End quote. Wow. Preaching the gospel to myself, and I'm talking about myself, will remind me that I'm in a right relationship with God. When my conscience reminds me of the sinner that I am, by preaching the gospel to myself, I remind myself that Jesus has already dealt with my guilt. As a result, there's nothing for me to do and there's nothing I can do to curry any favor with God. The same is true for every single believer. So this is the crux of the matter. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. It's this verse that God directed me to, to share with you this morning in particular. Paul says his desire is to know Christ, and here he uses a different word for know than he used in verse 8. Here the word know means to intimately be connected to, to be completely familiar with on the deepest level. More than knowing, it's more than knowing about Christ. Paul wants to intimately, deeply, and personally be familiar with Christ, who he is, all that he is about. Paul here is talking about a personal union with Christ that works itself out in all of our experiences. Every single thing we, we go through, every single experience that we have, the gospel is connected. In this union, we experience his power in our lives. This intimate relationship is expressed in a unity with Christ that results in our reliance upon Christ for everything. Jesus, praying for his disciples, including you and me, prayed about this very thing in the garden. He prayed, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. The word know that Jesus used is the same word as in verse 10, to intimately know. Jesus prayed that we would intimately know the Father and the Son. Only a person who has been regenerated, who has truly been saved, will sincerely claim to want to know Christ. This is the desire of one who knows his or her sins have been forgiven, and that they are in Christ, as Paul put it in Romans. I mean, think about it. You and I have been rescued from a terrible death, eternal separation from a holy God. Why wouldn't we have a a desire to more fully know him who delivered us? Why wouldn't our soul long and yearn, even to hungering and thirsting, as Spurgeon put it, to know Christ? You and I cannot be satisfied merely knowing that Jesus loves me and I'm not going to hell. We can't be satisfied with that. He took the penalty for our sin. And sometimes I think, I know I do, I think we just take that for granted. I think we just gloss over that. And we just focus on what we're experiencing, what we're engaged in right now at this moment. We need to refocus on the sacrifice that Christ made on our behalf, taking all of our sin upon himself. 
Or we may know theology inside out and upside down. We may be able to discuss theology with any professor from any seminary. Wouldn't matter who. Is that enough? I would argue no. And that's Paul's argument too. I mean, why would we settle just for that? Apart from really knowing Christ intimately. Paul was no different from you or me. He wanted more too. He really wanted to know Jesus. And that must be our burning desire as well, to know Christ personally, intimately, to the deepest level. Paul wanted the church to know that knowing Christ involved a couple of things. It involved the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, all that, it impl- all, all that the resurrection implied, as well as sharing in Christ's suffering. The word power here is describing for us the idea of effective, productive energy that accomplishes something. And those of us who believe in Jesus Christ, those who, of us who have faith in him, know that his resurrection accomplished something. What Paul understood was that Christ's resurrection guaranteed salvation because apart from the resurrection, there would be no rebirth. There would be no justification. And there would be no salvation or resurrection of believers at the end of the age. Paul recognized that the power of Christ's resurrection was at the heart of the gospel and that it was directly related to attaining the resurrection from the dead that he mentions in verse 11. Jesus' resurrection is our guarantee of our resurrection on the last day. Not only that, but Paul wanted to share in Christ's suffering. He wanted to participate in the misery that Christ endured, the evil Christ endured, and by doing so, he wanted to be conformed to Christ in his death. I finished reading a book a few months ago called Holiness by, by Grace by Brian Chapel. In the chapter entitled, What's Discipline Got to Do With It?, he wrote the following. The suffering we experience is necessary for us to understand the God that we proclaim. Suffering cannot be avoided if we are really to know Christ. Since the Bible says he became like us in order to sympathize and understand our condition, the converse also must be true. We must know his suffering in order to know him. If even an apostle would only know Christ through suffering, then I must recognize that the Christian disciplines that reveal him include scripture, reading, prayer, communion communion with fellow believers, and sharing in the fellowship of his suffering. But what is the nature of Christ's suffering that we must share in order to fully know his fellowship? His suffering included poverty, humiliation, pain, and death. All of these he endured for us. He suffered to take on himself the guilt and the consequences of the sins of others. And this is the key. Thus, if we are to know him through like suffering, we will not merely have to experience the difficulty of nameless forces and circumstances. We must also experience what it means to suffer for the sins of others. We must be willing to endure and love the damaged and damaging personalities who make us suffer. This is Luther's theology of the cross. 
the understanding that our deepest knowing of the one who bore the cross for us in some measure depends on our own cross-bearing of the miseries of this world and even of the miserableness of others. Reading that blew my mind. I mean, took me to a different place. I had never understood previously that sharing in Christ's suffering consists of suffering because of the sin of others. Don't you love it when the Holy Spirit pulls that cord and the light comes on? Now remember that sharing in Christ's suffering is suffering because of the sins or sinful attitudes of other people, not our own sin, not suffering because of our own sin that we engage in. So think about it. Have people plotted against you? And I don't mean in your own mind. But if people plotted against you, think of Christ, against whom the chief priests, the elders, and the high priest conspired. Have you been ridiculed for your faith? Think of Jesus, who was mocked, spit upon, ridiculed, accused, beaten. Has a friend betrayed your trust? Think of Jesus, betrayed by a man with whom he had spent the last three years, a man who had witnessed his restorative power. Or think of the other 11 guys that took off like scared rabbits. Have you experienced injustice? Think of Jesus, who went through sham trials, trials that um, none of which were just. Think of Jesus, who paid the price for our sin, the ultimate injustice. Has a son or daughter or a parent abandoned you and walked away from the family? Think of Jesus on the cross, crying out in a loud voice, My God, my God, my Father, why have you forsaken me? Now, I'm not saying that 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 was sin on God's part. Absolutely not. That'd be ridiculous. It's because of our sin he was hanging on the cross. But Jesus felt forsaken. He knew what that was. Parkway, for to this we have been called. What's this? Suffering. For to this we have been called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example so that we might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he he suffered, he did not threaten. But what did he do? He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. For it has been granted to us, each of us, that for the sake of Christ, we should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Suffering for doing good, suffering for the sake of Christ, suffering because of the sin of others, all come to us as believers because of the grace of God. And you might say, huh? Are you nuts? Well, that's exactly what Paul was talking about when he said, it has been granted to you. It has been bestowed upon you that for the sake of Christ, you should suffer for his sake. Or Peter, when he said, for this is a gracious thing, gracious thing, when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Friends, don't be discouraged by the suffering brought about by the sins of others. It's what we called in my world of law enforcement, evidence. Evidence of our intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. No, it's not fun. No, it's not something that we would um, voluntarily, intentionally engage in. But it's still evidence. Fixing our eyes on Jesus and the prize that awaits us, that is the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, gives us hope. 
And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We do not shift from the hope of the gospel that we have heard because of trials, but we continue in the faith, stable and steadfast. We have set our hope on the living God, not the things of this world. Remember, we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Be encouraged in all of the situation where you or I, as disciples of Jesus, experience suffering as a result of the evil intentions of others. We fellowship with Christ in his suffering. The suffering Jesus endured for us was a direct result of the grace of God. Because he loved us, he sent his son to be the sacrificial lamb. I mean, imagine hearing from Jesus, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Are you enduring patiently and bearing up for the sake of his name? Or are you growing weary? Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Put your hope in him. Trust him. Look for the day. Expect the day of his return. In a gospel primer for Christians, Milton Vincent ties the gospel and our sharing in Christ's suffering together. He wrote, the gospel is the one great permanent circumstance in which I live and move. In every hardship in my life, excuse me, and every hardship in my life is allowed by God only because it serves his gospel purposes in me. When I I view my circumstances in this light, I realize that the gospel is not just one piece of good news that fits into my life, somewhere among all the bad. I realize instead that the gospel makes genuinely good news out of every other aspect of my life, including my severest trials. The good news about my trials is that God is forcing them to bow to his gospel purposes and do good unto me by improving my character and making me more conformed to the image of Christ. Preaching the gospel to myself each day provides a lens through which I can view my trials in this way and see the true cause for rejoicing that exists in them. I can then embrace the trials as friends and allow them to do God's good work in me. That's another wow for me. By sharing in his sufferings and becoming like him in his death, we have to recognize that none of our suffering conforms to his suffering. There's no way. But just as Jesus Christ was killed for the sin of others, we are marked by the cross because we belong to him, because we now live in him as believers. And personally, understanding that I share in his suffering here and now, as opposed to my suffering, that's the way I used to view it, oh man, here we go again. We got this going on, we got that going on, we're being attacked from all sides. It was all about me. My suffering. This revolutionized, this this whole concept of suffering for, sharing in Christ's suffering involves suffering because of the sin of others totally reformed my way of thinking about suffering and the things that, that, that come to my life. Change my attitude toward those who sin translates to calamity 
or affliction for me. It helped me to actually love or at least move in that direction those whose sin bring pain and tragedy into my life. When I first read this, I was sharing with a buddy of mine downtown Vacaville at a coffee shop, and I told him, bring it on! I mean, if this is what sharing and becoming, becoming conformed to, to Christ and, and becoming like him and sharing in his sufferings, if that's what it's all about, bring it on. I have rethought that idea. <laughs> Finally, Paul wrote that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. If we are to share in his resurrection, we must be conformed to his death. Paul addressed that. Spurgeon described it as a slow and painful death that is sharing in his sufferings that we experience as we are conformed to Christ's death. And as believers, we are engaged in a struggle to persevere to the end. Paul does not view his salvation as something strictly in the past. Here he implies the future aspect of salvation, and I would argue he preaches the gospel to himself. He talks about the results in the future of the gospel. Twice in Matthew's gospel, Jesus said, but the one who endures to the end will, future, be saved. The writer of Hebrews twice addressed that very thing too. I believe that's what Paul has in mind here. You and I must endure to the end. We must keep a watchful eye on our lives. Of course, it is Christ who enables us to endure to the end. He's the one who sustains us to the end. In writing to the church at Corinth, Paul also said, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, past, in which you stand, present, and by which you are being saved, future. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Holding fast to the word that has been preached to us is essential. So, what do we walk away from this passage with? I would suggest we consider five things. My righteousness is through faith in Christ, not in doing. If that's been your mindset, that you've got to do, 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 be involved, be involved, be involved, read scripture, have a quiet time, memorize scripture, all those spiritual disciplines, in order to be acceptable before God, do like I did when I finally realized that that was a wrong view. Head slap yourself. Seriously. It's not about what we do. It's about what Christ has already done. Second thing I think we ought to consider is knowing him intimately must be the focus, the laser focus of our lives. Not the most important thing in our lives. The important thing in our lives. If I'm in a position, number three, to make a choice between the world or Christ, I will choose Christ. I shared with you before, we have to make a decision back here about what we're going to do when we're faced with something up here. We have to decide back here, if I'm faced with this temptation, this is what I'm going to do. Because if you wait till you're in the midst of it, you're going to be sitting there, and I'm going to be sitting there going, oh, gee, now what do I do? And we're going to be torn, and we're going to go back and forth, and I don't want to dis- disappoint anybody. I don't want to offend anybody. Or I want to engage in this sin. Deciding back here what we're going to do here 
makes all the world of, a, of a difference. Number four, even losing everything because of Christ means I gain Christ. That's a tough one. That's a tough one. Recognizing that if I lose everything because of Christ, I gain him. None of us wants to lose anything. We don't want to lose our parents. We don't want it because of Christ. We don't want to lose our children because of Christ. We don't want to lose our job because of Christ. But if we do, it means we've gained him. And finally, number five, sharing in his suffering means I come to know him intimately. If you sit and look at your circumstances, the trials, the suffering that comes to your life as my difficulties, my suffering, oh, now it's coming at us again because of other people's sin, revolutionize your thinking. In so doing, in, in, in experiencing the suffering because of the sin or sinful attitudes of others, the miserableness of others, as Luther put it, means that we share in Christ's suffering. And it means that we have, have and are coming to know him more intimately. I would ask you to just kind of take a look at that list and spend a few minutes talking to the Lord. And if there's something in addition to that list, go for that. But pray right now and ask God to show you what a difference he wants this passage of Scripture to make in your life.